Y'all ready to get into the Word for a few minutes? We're in Genesis chapter 13. We're studying the life of Abraham and at the same time studying the subject of faith. And when you talk about faith, you don't have any greater object lesson in Scripture than the man called Abraham. So we've introduced Abraham to you to this point. We've seen God call Abraham solely because of his grace and because of nothing in Abraham's life that would commend him to God. Abraham was a pagan, probably a moon worshiper in Ur of Chaldees, and God determines he's going to establish a people. So he calls Abraham. Before you can have a people, plural, you have to start with one human being, one person, and that was Abraham. And Abraham follows God, going out not knowing where he was going. God was taking him to Canaan, but they didn't understand that at the time. Oh, by the way, they're gonna, have, y'all, have y'all circulated the offering yet? Not yet. Okay, here's the thing. We're going to do that. They normally do it while we do worship. They're going to pass the plate tonight. Listen, if you don't know what you're giving to, uh, here's the thing. The offering that we collect in here on Wednesday night goes to our global mission fund. So it all goes to missions. The Wednesday night, Wednesday night offering is always a mission offering. Now, you can give on Wednesday night. There's no obligation to give. Some of us give to missions as a regular part of our giving, and we do it when we give on Sundays. But if you'd like to give to missions, this goes to our local. Most of it goes to support things that we do as a church at Hillcrest. It does not go to the cooperative program, but we support our mission efforts here. It goes into our global priority fund. So just be uh, aware of what you're giving to. You're giving to missions around the world when you give an offering on Wednesday night. Now... Back to Abraham, who's following the call of God, going to Ur of Chaldees. He finds that his faith is challenged immediately. He finds his faith is tested once he gets to the promised land. He makes a decision to go down to Egypt because when he gets to Canaan, he's immediately confronted with what obstacle? Who remembers? There's a famine in the land. That's right. He's confronted with famine. He thought it was going to be the greatest land in the world. He thought there was going to be material abundance, the opportunity for prosperity. And he gets there, and the first thing he's encountered with is, or first thing he encounters is brown, dry, dusty, barren, waterless sand for the most part. Crops aren't growing. There's nothing to eat. And he doesn't consult the Lord, which is always a mistake. He instead makes his decision on primal urges of his life. What do I think the best thing will be? And then he makes a decision to go to Egypt. God never told him to go to Egypt. That was a place of compromise. That was a place of idolatry. It was a place of polytheism where multiple gods were worshipped. And so God didn't want a child of his down there. That was, you know, the old saying, it's always easier to get pulled down than it is to get pulled up. And he knew that. This was a man of infantile faith. He didn't need to be around those Egyptians. And we see him compromising. The first thing he does when he gets there practically is to compromise concerning his wife. And so because of that, Pharaoh finds out, ends up running him out of town on a rail. 
And that's where we pick up our discussion tonight here in Genesis chapter 13. I want to talk with you tonight on the subject of conflict because Abraham is going to get back to the land of Canaan and his faith is going to be tested yet again. You know, there are certain absolutes in life, uh, certain things that are just given, all right? Uh, One of them is aging. If you live long enough, you're going to get old and you're going to start to feel the effects of getting old. Somebody said one time, you know you're getting old when all the names in your little black book end with the letters M-D. You know you're getting old. I tell you another given is death. Aging is a given. Death is a given. In fact, if you don't age, you've been caught up with by death earlier than you probably expected. We don't like to talk about that much, but it's a given unless we are quick to meet the Lord and His coming, we all going to die. And uh, that's a given. Well, when it comes to a life of faith, there's also some things that are absolutes. We looked at one of them last week. One absolute in a life of faith is that God will do what to your faith? Who remembers from last week? God will what? Test your faith. He'll do it early and He'll do it off. That's an absolute. If you follow the Lord... God will test your faith. I have multiple conversations every week with people whose faith is being tested. And I try to make sure that when they leave my office, they leave with encouragement. But I'm usually quick to tell them, here's the deal. You're going to survive this test. You will survive it. But it won't be the last test of your faith. God, God will, won't be the last time God tests your faith. He'll do it until you're face to face with Him. So it's an absolute. And for tonight's purposes, there's another absolute, and that is the certainty of conflict in relationships. How many of you have been married and engaged in marital conflict? Would you say amen tonight? Don't say it too loud, but just say a soft amen. You can't live together with somebody and not have conflict with them somewhere along the way. Would you agree with me tonight that conflict is a given in personal relationships, human relationships? Conflict is a given in group relationships, group dynamics. The certainty of conflict in a broken world filled with broken people, conflict is inevitable in every kind of relationship. I've told this story before. It's one that I'd never forget about the old man and his grandson who were trying to make their way into the little village with their donkey. Y'all heard this story? Grandfather at first had his son riding on the donkey as he led the donkey by the leash or by the bridle. And when they got into the town, everybody started pointing at them, said, look at that wicked old uh, that wicked young man riding on the back of that animal, breaking its back. It's a terrible thing. Why doesn't that selfish child get down and walk? And the grandfather couldn't handle it. And so he said, I tell you what, you walk for a while and lead the donkey, and I'll get on the donkey's back and ride it. And after a few minutes, another crowd gathered and started pointing at the old man. Look at that wicked old man abusing that donkey by riding on its back. And he couldn't handle that either. And so he gets off. And both of them 
walk beside the donkey, thinking that that would stop the criticism. And another crowd gathered, and they pointed and said, look at those two foolish people. They've got a perfectly good donkey they could be riding, and instead they're just walking alongside. They got rocks for brains. So the grandfather couldn't handle that. So he said, well, let's try this. So both of them get on the donkey, and they start to ride it, only for another crowd to get together saying, look at those cruel people abusing that poor animal. They're going to break its back. And so they're absolutely frustrated. And running out of options, the grandfather gets desperate and resorts to the only other thing that he could think of, and that was to go into the next town together with his grandson, both of them carrying the donkey into town. Well, no matter how hard you try, you can't avoid conflict. And neither, here's the thing, neither could Abraham, the great man of faith. Here's this man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, and not even the man of faith, the friend of God, as the Bible calls him, could avoid conflict in some of his relationships. It's kind of interesting that having returned to Canaan after failing that first big test of faith, running off to Egypt when God never told him to do that, Abraham comes back. Now, he comes back. He's a prosperous man. He'd done well while he was in Egypt, and he reestablishes his home. And the first thing that he does is reestablish his relationship with God. When he gets back to Canaan, we see Abraham becoming a man of worship yet again. But it doesn't take long for God in this time of reacquired worship for God to test his faith yet again. This time through relational conflict with someone to whom he was related, his nephew, whose name was what? Anybody remember? Lot. That's right. Now, we've seen Lot's name um, uh, before throughout the years, but as we open up the Bible, this is kind of the first in-depth picture that we're given of Lot, and he would indeed prove to be a sorry Lot. Can I have an amen? He's not one of the Bible's most admirable characters When God called Abram out of Ur, you see Lot making a decision to tag along. Now, one of the things that we don't know is the level of Lot's faith. We don't know if Lot was a man who actually believed God in the same way that Abraham did. Uh, There's no question that he probably got swept along with Abraham's faith, and that's easy to happen uh, and oftentimes does, where a person will lean against another person's uh, faith for their own strength. You can see kind of a, an attachment mentality. It happens a lot of times. You have to guard against it, for example, in vacation Bible school, right? Because a lot of times you give this open invitation for kids to come, you get 800 kids coming forward. And most of them have no idea why they're coming forward, right? They're just, they're just kind of going with the crowd. So at Hillcrest, we don't have a come forward invitation. We have a stay in your seat invitation. Those of you that want to know more about Jesus or if you're ready to receive Christ, stay right where you are, stay seated. Everybody else is going to get up and they're going to go. If there's going to be a herd mentality, we want the herd mentality to be going with them back to class, not coming forward if they're not ready to do it. Does that make sense? So it could be a situation where a lot is part of the herd mentality. And it happens a lot in churches. There are a lot of people who are in church that are what I call cultural Christians. 
They may have been in church every day of their life since they were little kids, but they've never been saved. They've never been born again. They don't have a personal faith. They're still drawing on mama's faith. Well, why are you in church? Well, that's just what good southern people do on Sunday morning. And so they've gotten into this religious routine, but they don't have a very deep faith. And the fact of the matter is, their parents' faith are probably the only faith they've got. And that happens all the time. That may have been the case with Lot. There's no question he probably leaned against Abraham's faith. But he follows him all the way to Canaan. And then he follows him all the way to Egypt. And what's interesting about that is he never, there's never a word in Scripture where Lot tries to check Abraham. And, you know, if you've got good friends in the Lord, you want them to be bone honest with you. Isn't that right? If somebody's my friend, I want them to be after what's best in my spiritual health. Not to be judgmental toward me, but to sometimes when it's necessary, put their arm around my shoulder and say, here's the deal. Here's what I'm witnessing in your life, and I love you too much to see you start to spiral in this deal. So let's talk about it for a minute. We never see Lot doing that, taking Uncle Abe aside and saying, you know what, here's the thing. I'm pretty sure I heard you just say we're going to Egypt. Now, why are we going to Egypt? Because I thought that was a place God said was a place we ought not be. You don't see anything like that happening. And so that what leads us to believe that if he has faith, it was probably a very shallow faith if he had it at all. He's drawing strength probably more from Abraham's faith than he is his own because he wasn't spiritually wise enough to make prudent decisions in the will of God. He just went along, no questions asked. And that's going to be the kind of wishy-washy spirituality that you see from Lot all the way throughout the Scriptures. He is indeed going to become a sorry Lot because some of the foolish things that he does and the terrible decision-making that he exemplifies in the Bible. But the conflict comes when they leave Egypt together with all of these possessions that they've acquired, and they relocate back to the land of Canaan. Let's come to chapter 13 and begin our reading in verse number 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanite and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. One of the things that you need to remember is that the the famine in Canaan probably was not over, even though they're now coming back to Canaan. Remember, they got ran out of Egypt. They got thrown out of Egypt by like the top dog. So they didn't have anywhere else to go. And so they go back to the land of Canaan, but it probably was still in a time of famine because what they find out is they bring so much more stuff back from Egypt with them than they had before they left to go to Egypt that the land couldn't sustain them all. They couldn't sustain both herds, both sets of flocks. Uh, It couldn't feed both sets of people, at least not all in the same singular location where both the Abraham family and the Lot family had settled together. And so they began to butt heads a little bit. Okay, whose flocks are going to get the choice pasture today? And wait a minute, your goats were over there yesterday Don't you think it's fair that mine get to go and graze over there 
today because where mine have been for the last couple of days, there's not much grass left. So all that wealth was causing this big family feud, even in a household of faith. And let me just say, you can be a person of great faith, and that faith is not going to insulate you from conflict in a fallen, broken world. It's not going to. I wish it did, but Abraham's life is an, a, an example of that, not just Abraham's life. You see all over the Bible the reality that just because you're walking by faith doesn't mean you're not going to have relational conflict. Paul and Peter, you remember in the book of Acts and the letter to the Galatians, Paul and Peter butted heads over the issue of table fellowship with Gentiles. They did not agree on that subject, or at least they, they didn't at the time. Peter, at one point, had sat down and had table fellowship with Gentiles. He was the guy, for crying out loud, that got called by the Spirit of God to the household of Cornelius, had table fellowship with them after God showed him the vision of the great sheet. Peter preached the gospel in a Gentile home for the very first time. Never seen a Jew do that before. Led that whole family and household to faith in Christ. And he'd had a pattern in this new age of God's grace across the great divide of Jewish and Gentile peoples. He'd had a great track record of sitting down and, and eating with them until certain people, legalists from Jerusalem, had gotten wind of this and said, this is not right. We don't have a problem with Gentiles coming to faith, but they've got to become Jewish first, and they've got to get circumcised, and only when they get circumcised can you then sit down and break bread with them. Peter got caught up in that and backed off, and it drove Paul nuts. And if you read the letter to the Galatians, it's a hostile tone in that letter. There's no cozy introduction. There's very little, I love you in the Lord. It's, oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? He'd had a bad day. I am astonished that you have so quickly fallen away from grace and accepted another gospel which is no gospel at all. He's hot, Paul is. And then he makes it clear. You know what? I know Peter got caught up in this mess. And rest assured, I've already had a conversation with Peter. And the, the phrase that Paul uses is, I got in his face. I got face to face with him, nose to nose with him. And I told him exactly what I thought about this gospel, which in Paul's mind was a heretical gospel that Peter had just gotten caught up in. Kind of like a mob mentality. And so you see this kind. And both of those guys were great men of faith. They were apostles serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But not even their faith. Oh, what about Paul and Barnabas? Man, they were missionary buddies in the first missionary journey. And then when John Mark, who'd bailed out on them earlier, wanted to get back in the game, Paul said, that guy set us back before. He's not ready and he's not going. Not with me. I love him, but he's not going because I don't think he's ready to go. And Barnabas, whose name means what? Son of encouragement, says, well, I'll take him then. I don't want to break his spirit. Who was right? Well, they kind of both were. But they couldn't land on the same page. And even good stuff came out of that because God formed two missionary teams. They went separate directions and probably multiplied the harvest 
by doing it that way. So not even faith can insulate you from conflict, and you see examples of that, several of them in the Bible. Even Jesus had conflict with his brothers from time to time. And it's never God's desire. It's never our desire. It should never. There's somebody, I've known some people in my time, and you have too, that seem to enjoy conflict. I've known people seem to thrive on it. They like to kind of poke and prod and pick fights and things of that nature. Can I just say, there's just something wrong with somebody like that. There is. Something not right. I mean, there's no way a person can be like that and walk in the spirit of Christ at the same time. I mean, there's a way to call somebody out and to deal with issues that are not right, but not, not to intentionally stir up a pot and cause conflict along the way, though we all know people that are like that. There are some 20 or so passages in the New Testament alone that deal with the importance. Y'all know how much is in the Bible about unity, don't you? Harmony, unity, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do whatever it takes that leads to peace and mutual edification. All of these things that are given in the Bible. So much space. Jesus prayed, Father, unify us, unify them, unify the church that is to come. Harmony, oneness, striving together, walk together, love one another, outdo one another, and showing honor to one another, use encouraging words. I mean, stuff's all over the Bible. This is the way we're to live with one another. All that space given in the Bible just speaks to the prevalence of conflict in human relationships, even in the arena of faith. And here in chapter 13 of Genesis, the lesson is, how does Abraham deal with that? How does the man of faith deal with the presence of conflict, family conflict? And the way he does really reveals a lot about his character and how far he's coming in the genuine development of his own faith. Let me give you three important principles tonight on dealing with conflict God's way. Number one, take the initiative in resolving the issue. So if you're in a conflict with another person or persons, uh, take the initiative. You say, well, what if I didn't well, take the initiative anyway? It doesn't matter who caused the conflict. If you know the conflict exists, take the initiative and deal with it. Because that's what Abraham does in the first part of verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. So he's playing it big here. He's taking the high road here. Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. Now, what you see here is a wiser and more mature Abraham than the one who went down to Egypt because Abraham is taking a page out of the Barney Fife playbook here. You remember Barney always used to say, you got to nip it in the bud. I can't do it like he did it. But he used to always say, you got to nip it, nip it, nip it in the bud. And that's what he's doing here. He's basically taking the high road. He doesn't avoid the problem, running away, trying to predict a situation doesn't exist when it really does. That's not peacemaking. A lot of people think that you're making peace by avoiding the presence of conflict. That's not peacemaking. That's avoidance. And that's not making the problem go away. Instead, what you do is in a Christ-like way, you approach the situation and you deal with it in a way that 
honors God in a way that's scripturally appropriate. Now, we don't like to do that. Very few people I know like face-to-face confrontation. Uh, So what we do is we postpone it. We wait for the other person to bring the issue up, whatever. The only problem is it usually gets bigger. It's always appropriate to have a cool. If you're hot under the collar, it's always appropriate to cool down, like Thomas Jefferson said. If you're angry, count to what? Ten. If still angry, count to a hundred. And the Bible would suggest, though it doesn't say it, if still angry, keep on counting to a thousand if you need to. Cool your jets first. Because you're probably not going to make peace if you deal with it in a hostile kind of way. That's probably just going to pour gas on it. So cool down, yeah, but don't avoid. Just deal with it uh, and try to bring a situation of peace out of a bad situation. That's what Abraham does. He recognizes the problem and he takes the initiative in resolving the issue. This is very biblical He's hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, and yet Jesus is going to say that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and following. Notice it in your notes. Jesus said, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something, what, against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. And then here's the kicker. Here's the summary verse, verse 25. Come to terms how? Quickly with your accuser. Quickly. Circle that word in your notes. The NIV says settle matters quickly with your adversary. That's a good word. So Jesus says if if God brings, if you're even in a house of worship, worshiping the Lord, and God brings to mind that there's a brokenness in a relationship with one another. Uh, drop your offering. So you got this calf in your hand, in your arms. It'd be, you'd be really strong if you had a calf in your hand. Calf in your arms. And he says, literally, drop it. Well, a Jew would have considered that profanity. I mean, it'd be like Jack or W.C. taking that offering plate and just dropping it on the floor, coins clanging everywhere. Everybody's looking around. It's disruptive. It's not what you do in the house of the Lord. One time in my ministry, I had a deacon drop the Lord's Supper juice tray. Yeah, it was rough. Because it's hard to recover from that. But you just keep right on going. You know what I mean? It's hard to predict there's not juice-stained carpet right in front of you, right? So that's kind of the thing. It's like, oh, well, that's what someone would do if you dropped a calf there in the temple. Man, that guy's dishonoring the Lord. And yet Jesus said the best way to honor the Lord is to take care of that relationship first because God's not going to accept that calf if he knows that you've got a heart issue with somebody else. So settle it quickly. Go deal with it. Then come back. Then come back. And God will find your worship acceptable to Him. So this is a teaching of Jesus. Conflict doesn't resolve itself. It has to be resolved. So deal with it. And remember, take the initiative because if we're aware of it, regardless of whether or not we caused it, it doesn't really matter too much to the Lord. The buck stops with us to be peacemakers. Jesus said that in the Beatitudes in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called the sons of God. Is everybody with me so far? Makes sense? Take the initiative in resolving the issue. Number two, 
Place harmony and unity over personal desires. The good of the many outweighs the good of me. And that's a very Christian thing to do. Look again at verse 8. Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between you, your herdsmen, and my herdsmen. Now let's finish the sentence. For we are what? Kinsmen. The NIV says brothers. But kinsmen is the idea. In other words, we're blood. We're family. That's the whole rationale. We don't need to be fussing and feuding and fighting because we're family. We're one. And this was Abraham's chief motivation in getting this conflict resolved. Now, they weren't literal brothers. Lot was Abraham's nephew. But the point is that we're dealing with family here. And there are few things in life more precious than family. How many of you have known a family have gotten all bent out of shape? Typically about money issues, right? Somebody dies, money's left, somebody's offended, they got left out, they didn't get included enough, somebody got an unfair portion, and the next thing you know, man, you got lava spewing out of Mount St. Helens. And everybody's fussing and fighting, and people that used to get along not getting along anymore, not talking to one another anymore. It's just terrible. There's nothing worse. Makes you sickened in your stomach when you see families acting like that. And Abraham, thousands of years ago, for this 4,000 years ago, he recognized that. And he set out to resolve the conflict quickly, even though that doing that may cost him personally. It would cost him personally. And uh, you know that's the motivation that we ought to have whenever we have conflict in our family, conflict among friendships, conflict in the house of God, whatever the case might be. Because what you see in Abraham's response here is a commitment to love and a devotion to his family that ought to be seen in the relationship between earthly families and the relationship between the spiritual family of God. We're to love each other for who we are, and who are we? Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches we're all on the same team, right? My old coach in baseball used to put it on the board, whiteboard, T-E-A-M, together everyone accomplishes more. And then he would say, never forget this, boys, there is no I in team. No I in team. It's all about the togetherness. Mike Krzyzewski, coach of the Duke Blue Devils men's basketball team, was asked a question one time, are two better than one? He said, two are better than one when two act as one. And that's the team dynamic. You get five guys on a basketball court acting as one, man, that's, that's what wins championships. It's when you got that one outlier. You know what I'm talking about? Jack used to manage people. Don used to manage people. Many of you did. You got that one outlier that just seems like constantly causing issues. Well, Lot was kind of that one outlier at this stage of the game in Abraham's family. And the way Abraham deals with it reminds us that ours is not to compete with one another. It's to complement one another. That We're not to slander one another. We're to strive with one another. Loyalty amongst family. Look at Romans 12 and verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then I love this statement. Outdo one another 
in showing honor. In other words, if you're going to have competitiveness in human relationships, God's saying here that competitiveness is okay if it's a competitiveness with respect to how effectively you're going to get outside of yourself and lift one another up. Oh, I bet I can honor you more than you can honor me. Oh, no, you can't. I bet I can honor you more than you can honor me, and let me show you how. So you've got this competitive. How can I do good to you? How can I do more good to you than you could possibly do to me? See, these make the healthiest marriages. I tell couples that come in for premarriage counseling, we make them go through premarriage counseling. Here's the deal. you got to get over the rights syndrome. Because a successful marriage is not based on rights, it's based on responsibility. It's not about what you get out of this relationship, though you should get some stuff out of this relationship. But your primary concern is not about what you receive, it's about what you pour into the other party. It's about giving, it's about sacrifice, it's about mutual love and respect, it's about a wife submitting herself unto her husband who loves the Lord and follows the Lord and treats her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And this concept of submission goes nuts among a lot of women. But then I'll say, here's the deal. If you find a guy that loves you as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that means that he's willing to die on a cross for you. And if you find a guy that's willing to love you as his own body, which is what Paul says to the husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church, love your wife as your own body, with the same meticulous detail that you groom yourself, shave, clean your body, feed yourself when you're hungry, paying attention to the needs of your life. Turn that outward and make sure you're treating your wife with the same meticulous detail to the needs of her life. How hard is it is going to be? How hard will it be to follow the leadership of a guy that loves you like that? Well, it wouldn't be hard at all. No, it wouldn't be. It's like following Jesus whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And so outdo one another in showing honor. And this is what you see in Abraham's life here, devoted love and acceptance of other people in spite of their faults. So place harmony and unity over personal desires. Don't focus on faults. Focus on what's right, major on what's right. you got to be able to say, you know what, i got faults, you've got faults, but here's the deal, you're a good egg. You're a little cracked, but you're a good egg. And if you learn to love your brothers and sisters for who they are as family, accepting people, even when you don't always agree with them, man, you're talking about minimizing conflict. That's the key to good, healthy relationships. I love Psalm 133.1. Behold how good and pleasant it is. When brothers dwell together in what? In unity. And that happens when you learn to outdo one another in showing honor and personal love and affection. And then thirdly and finally tonight, you learn to uh, surrender your rights for the benefits of others. Surrender your rights for the benefit of others. This is verse 9. Is not the whole land, this is Abram still talking to Lot, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. And notice the bigness here. Because remember, between Abraham and Lot, who's the older of the two? That's right. Terah is dead now. That was Abraham's father. He's dead. 
So who's the head of the clan? Abraham's the head of the clan. He's the boss. He's the lawgiver. And he could mess you up if he wanted to, if you got out of sorts with him. But what does he do here? Okay, we got a conflict. We, this, 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 this area of land that we're both on can't sustain us both, so what are we going to do about it? Here's what Abraham says. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, <clears throat> then I will go to the left. Now, you can see the bigness in that because he basically knew where the best land was. But you know what he does here? He just commits that to God. He said, I'm not going to make this a mountain to die on. I'm just going to commit this to the Lord and trust God to take care of me. And so that's what you see him do. He surrenders his right. He's got the right to say, here's the deal. I'm going to stay right here, brother. And we've got to divide, and so I'm going to throw you out, basically is what I'm going to do. 100 miles that way probably is the best place for you to go, but if you want to, fine. Otherwise, I'm calling the shots, and your stinking goats will go where I tell them to go. But he doesn't do that. You choose. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. Whatever you choose. And man, oh man, what's that a picture of? Humility, which you cannot be Christ-like without. The number one cause of conflict in relationships is what? Pride. There's Andy. See, Barney didn't say that, but Andy used to spot it in Barney all the time. And he'd shake his head and say, there he goes again. Pride, 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 pride. It's the number one cause of conflict. One of those deadly sins that's identified in the Bible. Romans 12, 16 sets the standard here. Here's what Paul says very directly. Live in harmony with one another. And then he describes the only way that can happen. What's the next phrase? Do not be haughty. There's no way that you can accomplish the first apart from the second. Everybody tracking with me? So if it's going to be all about you, if it's going to be all about me, then we're just asking for relational conflict. Someone suggested that the letters that make up the word ego, you don't know what ego is. You know what egomaniac is, right? Everybody in the room knows what that is. E-G-O. In the Greek, it's pronounced ego. And anybody know what the, it's a pronoun. Anybody know what the pronoun ego is in the Greek New Testament? Ego. It's not a waffle. Ego. I. It's the letter I. Ego, I, me. I am. So ego is the ego. It's me. It's I. And so someone has suggested an acrostic, E-G-O. And if, if it's ego out of control, what happens? E, edging G, God, O, out. And that's what an egomaniac does. Life becomes all about him. And when life's all about you, you have systematically edged God out. And that's the very definition of pride. Pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. 
And that's always a self-absorbed person where it's all about them. And we say this a lot, man. Rick Warren popularized this 15, 20 years ago when The Purpose Driven Life came out, when he popularized the phrase, it's not about me. And it's really not. I mean, that's a very biblical thing. It's not about me. God loves me. And, and God cares for me. There's no question about that. Christ died for me. But my life is not about me, fundamentally. It's about bringing honor and glory to God and lifting other people up is more important than me. More important than myself. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in what? Say it out loud. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And see, that's the attitude that makes for successful relationships. That's the attitude that makes for successful churches. Because that's what, that's what following Christ looks like. Right after that, for the rest of chapter 2, the writer Paul is going to give us a picture of Christ who left heaven, came to earth, born to a peasant family in a cattle trough, raised by a carpenter, walked the road to the cross, died on the cross, substitutionary death for the sins of the world, and died and run. And he did all of that for us. I mean, nothing about himself. He turned his back on himself in order to honor God. And this is what following Jesus looks like. And if life's all about me, then I'll have no room left for God. I will have systematically edged God out. And when that happens, relationships inevitably will suffer. But thank God, you know, Abraham, Abraham left, went to Egypt, outside of the will of God, comes back. And even though he went to Egypt in the flesh, he comes back to Bethel in the spirit and he's worshiping God again. He starts building altars to God again and everything changes in his life. Now we're going to see later on what happens with this story between him and Lot because Lot would choose what he thought was best. And uh, in the long run, it ended up being the worst mistake of his life. Because the place he chose is the place God's going to eventually burn up because of sin. So he made a selfish decision in the will of God. But for tonight, what's important is Abraham deferred to him, gave deference, trusting God to meet the needs of his life. Somebody said, the two, what are the two most difficult words in the English language according to most? Two most difficult words to say. I'm sorry. That's right. Chuck gets the Snickers bar tonight. Yeah. Two most difficult words are, uh, if, I remember seeing a poster when I was a kid. You know, those little, they had the cuddly cats or the monkeys with the, you know, the smiling faces or whatever. And then the, the, the line on the poster would be to have some tagline on there. And I remember one that said, had two little kittens balled up together. And it said, love means never having to say you're sorry. And I thought, that's the stupidest thing ever put on a poster ever. Love means having to say you're sorry all the time. Recognizing that you need to do that. I'm sorry. Two most difficult words in the English language. What are the three most difficult words in the English language? I love you, honey. Who said that? 
I think that's actually four words, which I'm not going to ask you tonight, but even at that, I don't think those would be the four words. Now, three most difficult words, two most difficult words, I'm sorry, three most difficult words, I was wrong. Who said that? Whitney Uski, my daughter. She obviously has hacked into my computer and got my notes before tonight. Oh, I was wrong. And she would say, the reason I know that is because you would never say it, Dad. No, that's right. I was wrong. And uh, man, though, when you do say that, have you ever had a situation where somebody came to you and actually said that? You know, that's wrong. And the, the liberating feel that accompanies that. Man, because what that person is saying is you're more important than me than what I thought was right at the time. And so we don't have to agree on everything. And we don't have, even when you don't agree, you don't have to have conflict. Because the Bible teaches we can walk arm in arm together even though we don't always see eye to eye. And the secret weapon is always love. Love is not rude. Love is not angry. It keeps no record of wrongs. It delights in the truth. It is patient. It is kind. Love never fails. And the greatest of these is love.